This is History West Midlands. A Worcester Moments podcast. Edward Elgar. No character in Worcester's long history is so immediately and so intimately linked with the city as is Edward Elgar. Music lovers all over the world associate him with the Malvern Hills and his beloved Worcestershire. He was a complex figure, in whom a craving for social success and recognition vied with a resentment that he would always be considered a provincial outsider. But however famous he became, however many honours were bestowed on him, and however much he was lauded as a society darling, he nevertheless always returned to the wellspring of his creativity, Worcestershire, Worcester, and its splendid cathedral. He was born in Broadheath, three miles outside Worcester, in 1857, and thereafter Edward Elgar spent the next forty years or so living in the heart of the city, where his father, an able amateur musician, was both a piano tuner to the Worcestershire Great and Good and the owner of a music shop. He accompanied his father on his visits to the county's aristocratic piles, tradesmen's entrance only, which might have developed an acute social sensitivity in him. There he watched him piano tuning. He also joined him in the organ loft of St George's Roman Catholic Church in Worcester, where William Elgar was organist. The young Elgar was given violin lessons, but in other ways he was an autodidact, poring over textbooks and scores in the music shop. He evidently had great natural talent, for those who later observed him working talked of his prodigious compositional skill, while he himself claimed that his music flowed out of him, apparently unmediated and uncorrected, straight onto the manuscript page. The Worcester environment did much to shape his musical ideas. Firstly, St George's, where he learnt to play the organ and was eventually to succeed his rather indolent father as organist. In addition, the Anglican cathedral in the city was to have an enduring effect on him. He later said, My first music was learnt in the cathedral from books borrowed from the music library when I was eight, nine or ten. There he listened to as much music as he could, hearing the choir singing Bird, Talis and Purcell, as well as attending the Three Choirs Festival when the cathedral was hosting. Experiencing Handel's Messiah, performed in 1869 when he was twelve years old, inspired him to reach new heights playing his violin. Perhaps the single most influential festival moment was in 1884, when Elgar, playing in the first violins, experienced the ravishing, tuneful, clever orchestration, as he put it, of Vorjak's Symphony No. 6, in a performance conducted by Vorjak himself. The cathedral would be closely associated with him all his life. Of the mature Elgar, the Manchester Guardian's music critic would later write that the very walls of the cathedral cry out to us from the same romantic past that bred his music. His music heard within them, is redolent of England.
He benefited too from the vigorous associational life of the city. He threw himself into local music making, joining the Glee Club, playing initially with the second violins in Worcester's Philharmonic Society before becoming its leader, and near the turn of the century founding the Worcestershire Philharmonic, which he conducted until 1904. Worcester gave him the opportunity to compose and to get his work performed. He started with motets for St George's when he was fifteen. He moved on to wind quintets and quadrilles in his late teens, and then fuller orchestral pieces. But by the end of the 1880s, there was a danger he would be destined to remain a peripatetic violin teacher and a local organist and choirmaster. However, in his Ave Verum Corpus, which has remained a popular church anthem ever since, and in his serenade for strings, he was beginning to show signs of his considerable talent. That was becoming more widely recognised, and the Worcester Festival Committee in 1890 commissioned an orchestral work, Frossart, which gave an early demonstration of his exceptional ability to orchestrate, of a different order to any British contemporaries. As Elgar's friend William Reed wrote, he knew unerringly what he wanted in the way of orchestral or choral tone, balance and colour. The next decade saw the festival continue to give him opportunities to refine his compositional craft. And if his greatest choral work, The Dream of Gerontius, was commissioned and first performed disastrously elsewhere, in Birmingham in 1900, it was in Worcester, with his own Worcestershire Philharmonic, that the first successful British performance was given in May 1901. Now his countrymen could begin to appreciate it as one of the most remarkable, beautiful and impressive works ever written by an English composer, as Michael Kennedy, his biographer, put it. Even if fame and fortune took him to London at the turn of the century, twenty years later he would return to Worcestershire to live and to re-engage with the local music scene. Worcester and the surrounding county gave him his musical breaks, but in other ways too, his background there deeply influenced him. Elgar was very susceptible to the city's burgeoning civic consciousness, civic pride, civic pageantry, imitative of London's own royal displays, responding enthusiastically to the military ceremonial and the soldiers' parades of the Worcestershire Regiment the flags and the bunting, all the flummery and ornamentation, celebrating a nation still, at the turn of the century, intoxicated with the imperial dream. Worcester was a solidly conservative constituency, and being close to Birmingham, it was influenced by Birmingham's favourite son, Joseph Chamberlain, who articulated the vision of an empire centred on Britain and bound together by imperial preference. Elgar himself was a Tory all his life, out of his pride in national pageantry and display came the colourful, tuneful, invigorating music like Land of Hope and Glory, the other pomp and circumstance marches, and cocaine, so loved by millions of Edwardians. Just beyond the city, the surrounding countryside comprised for him a pastoral idyll all his days, for though he didn't always have a home in the city, he would live close by it as, for example, at Malvern Wells in the 1890s, 
and he engaged in country pursuits like walking, beagling and fishing into his old age. When he resided in London in the years of his greatest popularity, he was homesick for Worcestershire, telling a friend in 1912, I long for a sight of my own country. The death of his wife in April 1920 accentuated that longing, and he wrote to an intimate, I like to think of the Worcester days, and you, and the flowers, and the fruit, and the warm sun, and my cathedral, and my music. But it is lonely. He was fully aware that it was only really in Worcestershire that he could get the peace and quiet he needed to work effectively. It was an inspiration to him in his music, most obviously in one of his first significant choral works, Caractacus, in 1898, which told of the last British stand against the Romans in the Maltham Hills. But just as much, the friends he made there were to be immortalised in the enigmatic variations, that orchestral work which first announced the arrival of a genuine talent on the British music scene. So, the subjects of the individual variations on a central theme comprised, among others, a Worcestershire country squire, a Malvern architect, the Chatelaine of Madrasfield, local ladies from the Worcestershire Philharmonic Society, a chamber music crony from Worcester, and a member of a Malvern musical family. Yet, for all that he loved his home city and the county, another side of him resented its parochialism. Those forty years in Worcester, it took a late developer to make his national reputation, irked him. He was conscious of being a bit of an outsider, a Catholic and a provincial, with a lower middle-class background, the son of a tradesman. In 1900 he was to say to a friend that I know I was kept out of everything decent because my father keeps a shop. Perhaps this is why he worked so hard to impress royalty, dedicating works to the monarchy from Queen Victoria and on to the young princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret Rose in 1931, whilst also making himself a favourite of Edward VII. It also explains his unquenchable desire for honours, and even in his last years, after his many decorations, he was still campaigning for his elevation to the peerage. His lack of formal musical training made him chippy about academic composers like Stanford and Parry. Stanford's Cambridge snobbery and exclusivity gave him good cause at times. So, Elgar took particular pleasure in the veritable shower of honorary doctorates accorded him around 1900, taking the robes of his Cambridge doctorate at the first opportunity back to Worcester to show his proud parents. He might fulminate against the music establishment, but he craved its recognition. The mastership of the king's music consolidated his position among the leading musicians of his day. Where Stanford, Parry and later English composers like Britton, Walton and Tippett were highly educated and well-off, Elgar was conscious both of his comparative educational deprivation, taught in a dame school in Worcester, then in specially Roman Catholic school, and of his family's relatively modest financial circumstances, it made him intensely conscious of money once his compositions started to achieve success. But marriage to Alice Roberts, a lady of means, made him financially secure, 
When the commissions came in and he was successful, he enjoyed the money, spending freely on their London home, Seven House, and on an extensive social life in the capital. Perhaps financial security partly explains the dulling of his creative spark. For, after that concentration of great works which established his reputation, from the Variations, Gerontius, the Kingdom, and the Violin Concerto, the pace slowed. Even in the First World War, he still managed to write The Spirit of England and his marvellous cello concerto, but his last fifteen years were largely barren. There would be one last hurrah, the seven suite for brass band and later for orchestra, dedicated to various locations in his beloved Worcester, castle, cathedral and commandery, and premiered at the Three Choirs Festival in the city in 1932. It wasn't simply that the commercial drive had faded. Just as importantly, the war and its revolutionary consequences deeply affected him, not simply through the human cost, but just as importantly because of the destruction of the whole pre-war civilization. Balmy Edwardian summer gave place to spiritual winter after 1918. Martial pomp and swagger seemed both unfashionable and tasteless, and that side of his output tended to colour a wider appreciation of his music. Elgar's own appearance had anachronistic echoes. Photographs from the 1920s and 1930s show him in the guise of the country squire or, whenever the occasion allowed, sporting full academic dress or gartered and velvet-clad decorated with his stars and sashes and his honours. To some he seemed out of time, an Edwardian relic, but not in Worcester, where he was still revered and where he took an active part in civic and musical life and continued to conduct in the Three Choirs Festival memorably, almost up to his death in 1934. He died in Worcester in Mulbank, the city hosting the National Memorial Service shortly afterwards. The bronze statue opposite the cathedral and the stained glass window in the cathedral itself celebrate one of Worcester's favourite and most famous sons, the local man who led the renaissance of English music in the 20th century, and whose compositions to this day, more than those of any other musician, popularly embodied the emotions of patriotic pride and fervour. 